Amen. Chapter 18, we read that the priests, the Levites, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel, and they shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire in his portion. Now remember that as we're at this point in Deuteronomy, that they, this, this nation uh, that is going to go into uh, the promised land is on the east side of the Jordan River. And as they came out of Egypt, about two and a half, three million people, they've been in the wilderness for the last 40 years. We've looked at that experience that they've gone through as they came to the mountain of God. They received the covenant uh, from God um, that was for them. And so also the law. And we also saw in their disobedience and unbelief that the Lord said that this generation is going to die out in the wilderness. So here's a new generation that needs to hear the law once again. That's what Deuteronomy and Septuagint means, the second law, not that there's a new set of laws, but here is Moses' final address to the children of Israel. And he is going to give this series of sermons that we've been looking at, giving them the, um, the law. He, he has reminded them of the covenant that uh, the Lord made with their fathers, and it was a covenant not just for their fathers, but for them as well and for uh, the next generations, uh, for their people, for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know that it is also the law that was given to them. And then the ceremonial laws and the civic laws and all that that we've been going over. So some of this is being repeated. And we're going to go over it fairly quickly, some of it again, because we've seen it over and over again. But here is the Lord preparing this, this group of people, this nation, to go in and take the promised land. So they are ready physically, but they're not ready spiritually. So here is the law given to them. And uh, here are all the customs given to them, the principles of how they're going to govern themselves when they go into the promised land. So in chapter 18, we're reminded again of the portion that's going to be given to the priests and the Levites. Remember that the priests, as we saw in the book of Leviticus, they're the ones that are involved in doing the priestly ministry there at the tabernacle. Eventually it would be at the temple. And the Levites would assist the priests in the ministry. So every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. And so to the Levites who were called to minister before the Lord, when they go into the promised land, the Levites aren't going to have an inheritance. In other words, they're not going to receive a section of land that they can grow vineyards and have orchards and have herds of animals um, and have grain fields. Um, they're going to have 48 cities that are going to be given to them, as we saw, spread throughout Israel. Six of those cities are going to be cities of refuge that we'll talk about in the next chapter. And that's where they're going to live. And so here, as, as God once again is reminding uh, the other 12 tribes that when you go into the promised land and you, we divide up the land, the Levites aren't going to get an inheritance because I'm their inheritance. But what you're going to do is you're going to provide for them in the sacrifices that are brought and in the first fruits uh, of your grain. And the Levite will be provided in that way. And so that's what they're being reminded of once again. In verse 2, Therefore they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance, as he said to them. And this shall be the priest due from the people, from those who offer a sacrifice, whether it's a bull or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain and your new wine and your oil, the first of the uh, fleece of your sheep, you shall give him. In verse 5, for the Lord your God has chosen him out of all the tribes to stand a minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. And then verse 6, so if a Levite comes from any of your gates 
From where he dwells among all Israel, he comes with all the desire of his mind to the place which the Lord chooses. Then he may serve in the name of the Lord his God, all his brethren, the Levites do, who stand there before the Lord, and they shall have equal portions to eat beside what comes from the sale of his inheritance. So all the Levites that are serving, and it was the Lord's desire that they would all serve, had equal rights to the offering. And then we see in verse 9, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn t- um, to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. So what we have seen is, is that the Lord has been warning the children of Israel, when you go into the promised land, do not get involved with those Canaanite gods. Don't get involved in any of their false worship, their false idols, all the false places of worship, the high places, the sacred pillars, uh, the, the wooded groves. You're to do away with those things. And, and I'm going to prescribe a place for you to worship, and eventually that place, of course, would be Jerusalem. So the Lord has been repeatedly telling them, don't get involved with this false worship. Don't get involved with the false god of the Canaanites. Don't get involved with false practices. And here he is warning them, don't get involved with what they are involved in, and that is occultic kinds of practices. And so apparently the Canaanite uh, uh, false worship would involve occultic kinds of things. And you can do a, a lesson on it. You can do uh, you know, a background on it, and you can see that definitely that it was. And so what he's telling them is do not even learn to follow the abominations of the nations as we see. I don't want you to, to be curious and to learn of those things. And as we here today talk about these things, we know as Christians that we are to not to have anything to do with the cultic kinds of things and those things that are listed here. And God knows that, that people have just this curiosity for some reason regarding occultic kinds of things because I think it involves the supernatural. And I've even talked with Christians that get involved with those kinds of things or they're interested in those kinds of things or they want to know more about it. And the Lord says you're not to approve of those things, you're not to learn of those things, you're not to practice those things, you're to stay away from uh, those occultic practices that are listed here. And so we have seen in our society, and I believe particularly in the last 30, 40 years, we've seen a great increase since uh, the 60s of occultic kinds of things that have, uh, you know, uh, been a part of our society and our our nation. Uh, We we, uh, see it that it's on the rise with the New Age uh, movement as well. And so the Lord is warning us to stay away from these things. One of the areas of occultic practices that has greatly increased, particularly over the last uh, 15 years, is Wicca or witchcraft. And matter of fact, there are some statistics that suggest that the fastest growing religion right now among young teenagers, women, is Wicca. And I, I think that that's very much a concern as we hear those things. But as he says here, you're not to, first of all, in verse 10, uh, as he says, those um, that you shall not be found among you, anyone who makes a son or daughter pass through the fire. So we've talked about that the Canaanite gods, one of the gods that they would worship was the, the god of Moloch. And it would be uh, that the Canaanites 
would pass their children, sacrifice their children on the arms of Moloch. It would be Solomon who, as you read in um, 2 Kings, that he would be one that would actually build a temple to Moloch. And the reason that he did is because he violated what we saw last week in chapter 17, those principles and commands given to the kings. The Lord knew that they would ask for a king. He's looking down 400 years uh, after this time, and he knew that they would come, which they did to Samuel, the prophet, and said, we want to be like the other nations, and we want to have a king. And so it was Samuel that went to the Lord, and the Lord said, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me because the Lord wanted to be their king. And that's what they, they were called Israel, governed by God. And so they, they had those kings, and the Lord says, when you ask for a king, they are not to multiply horses. They're not to multiply in, in excess gold and silver. They're not to multiply wives. Why? Because they will turn your heart away. And that's what Solomon did. With his 300 wives and 700 concubines, they would turn him away from the Lord, and he would burn incense to those false gods because many of those wives were from foreign nations that believed in false gods and in um, false worship they were involved in, in, in idol worship. And it would turn Solomon towards those kinds of things. He actually made a temple to Moloch. It would be King Ahab that you read about, that he would pass his children, his sons, to the arms of Moloch as well. Ahab was a terrible king. He was ruling during that time when it would be Isaiah that would come to him and say to Ahab, God's going to give you a sign. And that is that a woman shall, or a virgin that is, shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And Ahab didn't believe in the Lord. He wouldn't trust in the Lord. It was also Manasseh who ruled for 55 years that did great damage to the nation of Judah in his bringing of idol worship and occultic kinds of practices as well. He passed his sons through the arms of Moloch. So it was a problem, and the Lord has been saying, as we have talked about this, that do not get involved in these things. Don't get involved in witchcraft. Now, we've seen a rise in witchcraft, or Wicca, in our society today. And it comes in two main categories that you see and you hear about uh, witchcraft. There is uh, the white witchcraft, which is supposedly what they will tell you is uh, a good witchcraft, and then there's the black witchcraft. And the white witchcraft, what it involves is um, the use of spiritual powers, what they claim to for good. And so what they do is um, they uh, very much are um, into uh, ones who are ecology-friendly. They talk a lot about Mother Earth. They worship the Earth. Uh, They're pantheists is what they are, those who believe that divine life forces is in everything. So that's where you see the bumper stickers. And I'm not saying everybody who has this bumper sticker is involved in, in Wicca or uh, is a witch. But um, love Mother Earth. They will worship Mother Earth. They will do their you know, ceremonial things on Earth Day and all these other things. And so they're ones that claim to have good spells uh, to uh, bring healing to people, to bring prosperity to people, to have people fall in love and all these things. So there are those who claim to be white witches or be involved in white witchcraft, which is what they say to be good. And the Lord says you're not to have anything to do with that. Now, there's another side, and that is the black or the left-hand witches. And those are witches that uh, are ones that are desiring to go into a greater power. Um, 
they are ones that look to Satan to give them their power. And, um, and so, um, you know, uh, they're the ones that like to conjure up spells or anything like that. And, um, and like to turn to Satan for their source of power. And there is power behind Satan. We've seen that. Remember when Pharaoh, uh, uh, Moses came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and Moses threw down his staff and it turned to a snake? What did Pharaoh's magicians do? Threw their staffs down and it turned into a snake. So here are the white witches, the black witches, the, the uh, two groups, main groups. The Lord says don't have anything to do with it. Sue's saying... Um, those who are those who turn to um, the heavens, they turn to astrological type divinations um, and horoscopes and things like that to try to uh, come up with um, guidance or revelations or interpreting visions. We see that in the Old Testament, don't we? When it was Pharaoh that had that dream in the book of Genesis, you recall that uh, he called his who? Magicians, astrologers, soothsayers to come and interpret the dream for him and um, they couldn't do that so that's where they brought up Joseph when Daniel was taken off into Babylon there was uh, Nebuchadnezzar that had that dream and he called for his soothsayers and he called for his astrologers to tell him the dream and the interpretation of the dream they could not do that so that's very much a, a practice in, in ancient pagan um, times you know in, um, in, in beliefs that very much uh, soothsayers were a part of that. So they're involved uh, perhaps in the stars and the planets and the heavens, zodiacs. Uh, we know that most major newspapers in the United States carry a, a horoscope, and the Bible clearly forbids any participation of that. Um, and so um, soothsaying. Uh, goes on, you go and look at this list, one who interprets omens. And that word comes from the root to hiss, to whisper. It refers to psychics, fortune telling. Um, and it, it, it refers to those who try to gain knowledge, tell a future, even cast spells, um, things like that. So those are um, those involved with that. It may be uh, partly involved with witchcraft that they do these things, but um, they try to tell a future and psychics and fortune telling and all of this. And that has been on the increase very much in our society. Matter of fact, you can drive high down Highway 34, can't you? And most of us know on the left-hand side there, right-hand side, sorry, that there's the farmhouse that has fortune-telling and palm reading and all of this. So next on the list, sorcerer. Uh, that's a reference to those who use drugs or potions to cast spells and, again, try to gain spiritual knowledge and, um, and things like that. Um, there is one who conjures up spells. Uh, that literally means a charmer of charms. It refers to one who casts spells or charms for either good or for evil uh, and um, trying to do it uh, with a, some kind of uh, power that they're calling upon. So he says you're not to do anything or have anything to, with that um, kind of practice. A medium. Uh, a medium has the idea of someone who what? Stands between. And here in this case, in occultic kinds of practices, one who stands between the physical world and the psychic world. And what they claim to be able to do is to channel knowledge from the psychic world into the physical world. And um, so it may be channeling. Uh, that's huge um, in our society. One who maybe perhaps has visions of the dead or those 
on the other side of the spirit world, they will claim. Uh, that is something that you see a lot of even today, radio programs, even our own local radio program on a Saturday night had someone who would uh, be able to call up the dead. Um, that's the last that's on this list. Um, and he says he contacts the dead and he has a message for, you know, that comes from, you know, Aunt Martha to you. And people are amazed in all of this. Right? And people call in and they're all over the place, these people. So mediums, one who calls up the dead, spiritists, one um, that claims unique occultic or physic knowledge and powers and, and all of this. Usually they're ones that um, the spiritists that uh, are involved in psychic hotlines. So all these things that we were told that we were to stay away with uh, from. Um, tarot cards, Ouija boards, all these things. And again, there are Christians that can get involved in these things. Uh, I remember there was someone who was uh, years ago coming here, and her mother-in-law, she was saying, was involved in tarot cards, and she got interested in it. And the next thing you know, she got sucked into it. And she tried to convince me there was nothing wrong with it. And, and it was, you know, God can speak through these cards and all of this until I showed her Deuteronomy chapter 18. So if you have anybody that is interested or involved or wanting to know about the cultic kinds of things, make sure that you mark Deuteronomy chapter 18, that the Lord says that you and I as Christians that we are to stay away from these things. And so verse 12, for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. In verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear, according to all you desire that the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see the great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. And I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he will shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And so uh, here Moses gives a promise of a prophet that is to come. We see in verse 15 that it is going to be one that's going to come from the midst of your brethren. Verse 15 also tells us that you shall hear him. And then verse 16 that we see that according to all you desire of the Lord your God in Horeb that day of the assembly, saying, let not us hear the voice of the Lord. And in other words, you remember that, that Moses was telling them that when your fathers came to the mountain of God, that God said, I'm going to show you myself to uh, your fathers, and he did. And we read about that in the book of Exodus where the mountain shook, it was on fire, there was earthquakes and thunderings, and the people trembled, and they said, Moses, you go up on the mountain. And you hear what the Lord has to say, and we will do those things. And there was boundaries put around the mountain that where no one could go up on the mountain or pass those boundaries lest they die. So it was one who was a, a mediator. And then verse 18, about this prophet, I will put my words in his mouth. And then verse 19, that um, God will require of the one who rejects him. And so we know that this is speaking of Jesus that the prophet that would come 
would be Jesus, and we know that it would be Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 37, who makes reference to this. Moses speaking of that prophet, and he's talking about Jesus. It's fulfilled in Jesus, and you have rejected him as he was talking to the religious council, the Sanhedrin council, Stephen, the first Christian martyr that we have recorded in the scriptures, Acts chapter 7. And so it is Jesus that he is the one that came from his brethren. That is, he was from um, of the tribe of Judah. He was a Jew. And Jesus said also, as it says, that him you shall hear, that, that I speak only the words that the Father gives to me. You recall on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was there with Moses and Elijah, that the voice of the Father was heard saying what? This is my beloved Son, hear him. It was Mary there in the book of John that the first miracle that Jesus did, you recall that the servants were told to fill up the water pots uh, with water, and it was Mary that said, listen to him, do what he says. So speaking of Jesus, we hear him, we are to listen to him, and we know that Jesus would speak only the words that the Father would give to him. We know that many would reject him of his brethren, and we know that the scripture very clearly says that there's going to be judgment for those who reject Jesus Christ. And so this is a fulfillment uh, that would come through Jesus as Moses speaking about that prophet. But as he speaks about Jesus, also he speaks now, verses 20 through 22, as we finish the chapter, about the false prophet. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now you recall in chapter 13 that it was Moses that, you know, speaking the words of the Lord, the Lord warned the children of Israel. If there's uh, one who has a vision or the one who claims to, to have a message from God, um, and he does miracles, but he pulls you away from the Lord, then you are to reject him. And here, if one is speaking in the name of the Lord, his prophesying, and that thing does not come to pass, then he has spoken presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. Matter of fact, the guidelines that are going to be given that that false prophet is to be stoned to death. And so here God is saying, anyone who is prophesying that is speaking in my name, it is going to be true. It's not going to be false. If he's, it's predictive, it must come to pass. Now, one of the amazing things about this Bible here that we have is about a third of it is, is prophecy. And we know that as the prophets would come along, God's true prophets, and they would prophesy that those prophecies would come to pass. Matter of fact, when it comes to Jesus... His first coming, the prophets coming on the scene, I already quoted to you from Isaiah chapter 7, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his same shall be, name shall be called Emmanuel. That's one of the prophecies that Isaiah brought. There are over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming, and every single one of those prophecies were fulfilled to the letter. They weren't just broad prophecies that were spoken of, but they were prophecies, very specific prophecies, where Jesus would be born and where he would be raised concerning the life and ministry of Jesus, concerning his death and his resurrection. All of those 300 and some prophecies fulfilled to the very letter. And that's absolutely amazing. And you've heard me give the odds that 
the odds of somebody being born and coming along and just fulfilling nine of those 300 plus prophecies would be one to the tenth to the seventeenth power. That's what statisticians and scientists and those who are into those mathematical formulas have come up with. One to the tenth to the seventeenth power, which is taking a silver dollar and taking a lot of them. You take one silver dollar and you mark it with the next. And what you do is you fill up the whole state of Texas two feet deep full of silver dollars. That's one to the tenth to the seventeenth power of silver dollars. Stir up the pot. Blindfold somebody. Have them walk through the state of Texas for as long as they want, whenever they want to stop. Reach down, pick up a silver dollar. The odds of him picking that one that you marked is one to the tenth to seventeenth power. That's just for nine of the prophecies being fulfilled, one person coming along and fulfilling those prophecies. Now, when you go out to 11 prophecies, when you go out to 20 prophecies, it becomes where you don't use silver dollars, but electrons in the living universe, you know, um, that all of this. And it shows us that God's word is true. And that's what God is saying, that I am true. And, and if I am speaking, it's going to come to pass. So all those prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming fulfilled to the letter, so we can have confidence, can't we, that all the prophecies concerning his second coming are going to be fulfilled to the letter as well. Amazing when we get into the books of the prophets, all the prophecies that were fulfilled and, and all of this. So he's saying, listen, if they're speaking on behalf of the Lord, it doesn't come to pass. Either they made a mistake or the Lord made a mistake. And the Lord doesn't make mistakes. So they're speaking presumptuously. And the reason that I'm kind of parking on this a little bit, guys, is because I think there are too many people with thus saith the Lord's that are speaking um, from the pulpits and stuff and giving these wild prophecies and stuff, and they're not coming to pass. And I've even had them, you know, come to me or getting letters or, you know, just ridiculous things and so-and-so and this and this going to happen at this time, and it never happens. Well, you didn't hear from the Lord. And so we need to make sure that, first of all, we filter it through the Word of God. That any prophecy that comes forth, foretelling of God's Word, is not going to contradict God's Word, okay? Any foretelling that is of the future, it must come to pass. Now understand this, that what the Bible does talk about, there is one going to be one that's going to rise up in the last days. And he's going to be called the false prophet. He's going to be allied with one called the Antichrist. And that false prophet is going to deceive many. And just as the Lord has warned, even if one comes along that has visions, who has dreams, who works miracles, but pulls you away from the Lord, you are to reject him. This false prophet that's spoken of in the book of Revelation chapter 13 is going to be one that's going to work miracles. And it's going to deceive a lot of people and he's going to point to the Antichrist and he's going to tell the world to worship the Antichrist, exactly what we have been warned against in Deuteronomy chapter 13. So folks, everything that if somebody comes along and they start saying, thus saith the Lord, you check it out with the word of God, and you need to have discernment, all of us do, in the day in which we're living. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 tells us, when prophecy is exercised in the congregation, that it is to be judged. And so there is the judging of prophecy, and there is the, the coming forth uh, of what is spoken that needs to be true. If not, they spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Chapter 19, when the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God has given you, 
and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses. You shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God has given you to possess. You shall prepare wards for your roads, that is, for yourselves, divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God has given you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. Now, again, we've talked about 48 cities of the Levites that are going to be spread throughout the land. Six of those cities are going to be cities of refuge. So the manslayer could go there. Three are on the east side of the Jordan River. Half of the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Reuben are going to receive their inheritance there on the east side of the Jordan River. And who is the manslayer? Well, verse 4, in the case of the manslayer who flees, there he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past. When a man goes into the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor, so that he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and kill him, though he is not deserving of death, since he has not hated the victim in time past. In other words, you go out in the field with somebody, you're chopping down a tree, the axe head comes off and accidentally kills somebody. Then that person could flee to the city of refuge. The roads were to be good, and there he would be safe until the elders and the judges of the city would hear the case. He would be protected from the avenger of blood. Who's the avenger of blood? Remember, they didn't have a police force back then. So if you needed justice, if you were suing somebody or needed you know, a crime committed or whatever, you had to find that person and bring them before the judges. So here is the avenger of blood. What he would do is if you, know, you killed my brother or he's dead, then he would avenge his blood. He would go after that person. So this was a place for that manslayer if it was an accident. To be able to be safe, he's safe from the avenger of blood. They couldn't get to him until the case was heard. So that's what we've all talked about. And so verse 7, or um, yeah, verse 7, um, Therefore I command you, saying, You shall separate three cities for yourselves. Now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself beside these three, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and thus guilt or bloodshed be upon you. So uh, here again, that when they went into the promised land, three more cities would be established. And then verse 11, but if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him, strikes him mortally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of the city shall send and bring from him there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. And your eye shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. So in other words, if it wasn't an accident, if it was premeditated murder, then he was no longer safe in the stay in that city of refuge, that he would be taken. And, uh, of course, the punishment, as we have seen, for murder was capital punishment. Verse 14, You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, and your inheritance, which, the Lord, uh, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. So, in other words, they would mark land, you know, with piles of rocks or boundaries, um, and you're not to move those boundaries. Um, you're not to um, enlarge your land and take away from somebody else. So in other words, 
that you're to be honest, and that's something that you and I are called to do as Christians, aren't we? In your dealings with others, in your business dealings, at your job, whatever it might be, you be honest. You be honest. You don't take from others. But you do what is right before the Lord. And you conduct your business in that way. You conduct your job in that way, whatever it might be. So you don't enlarge your land and take away from somebody else. And so we are to be ones that, as Proverbs talks about, honest scales, not to be taken from someone, take advantage of others, that we are to be honest in our dealings with others. And then verse 15, one witness shall not rise up um, against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make a careful inquiry. Indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear and hereafter. They shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall have no pity. Life shall be for life. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot. So concerning witnesses, again, we've seen this. Concerning true and false witnesses, when it comes to an inquiry, when there's been sin, when there's been a crime that's been committed, that it shall not be one witness that establishes it, but it shall be established by two or three witnesses. If you come along and you give a false witness, you are in big trouble. And if you were being deceiving and, and false in your accusations, then the same punishment that would come to that person that you were accusing would then come to you. Isn't that interesting? That would sure be a deterrent against false witness. So the Lord is taken very seriously. If you're going to bring up this, this false witness against somebody, then um, you're in big trouble. And if it's found out, then you're going to receive the punishment that they should have received. The Lord was interested in justice. And so he says, a lie for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And what the Lord is saying in that is that there is going to be justice, but it's going to be in check, all right? Because my tendency is, you poke me in the eye, I want to knock your block off, right? You knock my tooth out, I want to do more damage to you. So the Lord was... Int that, no, that's not me, okay? I'm just saying, that's our nat <laughs> natural tendency, okay? So, <laughs> be careful what I say. So that can be... So, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'm interested in justice, so I want you... To have this justice and, and it needs to be in check. And so, of course, Jesus would say, an eye for an eye, if somebody comes and slaps you on the cheek, then turn the other. What does he mean by that? I'll let you do a little homework on that. All right. But Jesus, in that case, is talking about relationships. He's talking about how we are to love others. This is talking about crime and court cases that are taking place here. Chapter 20, let's do it. Real quick, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And verse 3, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint, nor be afraid. 
Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. In verse 4, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. There's a lot of chariots out there, aren't there? Horses in the world that can make us afraid. And the Lord says to us, don't be afraid. Because the Lord is with us. And we don't have to be afraid because the promise of his presence, first of all, he says, I go before you. And the promises that are given to you and to me. And it's interesting here that it says that the priest shall approach and speak to the people when you get ready for battle. And sure, it would be an anxious time. It would be a nervous time. They would see they're going to go up as you go in the book of Joshua against all these chariots and horses. They didn't have any of those things. And the Lord is reminding them that you trust in me. And the priest would come along and he would encourage the people before they would go into battle. You know, that's what I want to do. I want to encourage you every time that you come into this place to encourage you in your walk with the Lord, but also knowing that it's a battle out there, isn't it? And sometimes it, it gets to where it's hard and it's heavy and it's overwhelming in our lives. And I want you to know something. That whatever battle that it is that you're facing tonight or presently, that the Lord is with you. And the Lord loves you and His promises are true for you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And so he desires for us to understand that and to know that. Because we become faint-hearted and we become terrified. But we can look to the Lord. Just as the children of Israel, remember the Egyptian chariots that were coming down on them? Exodus chapter 14, we know the story. And they would see the chariots and they cried out. They see they needed to lift their eyes a little higher to the Lord. And it would be Moses that would say, that don't be afraid, for see the salvation of the Lord, for the Lord is with you, and these Egyptian chariots you will see no more. And you know what? The Lord's going to see you through, and the Lord is going to work in your life in the way that he desires. But it is a battle out there, and I know that it gets hard and it gets difficult. The message of the Lord to you is don't be afraid. In verse 5, then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, what man is there who has built a new house who's not dedicated it, let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, another man dedicated. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard, has not eaten of it, let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle, another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman, or that is kind of the engagement period, and has not married her, let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle, another man marry her. The officer, officer shall speak further to the people and say, what man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. Some guidelines given for those going into battle. He says, listen, if you have a house that you're building and you haven't dedicated it, then what's going to happen is you're going to be so focused on that house that you're not going to be able to go to war. You're not going to be able to go to battle. So you need to go back. And you need to take care of that and then you can come join us on the front lines. If you have a vineyard, you have any of the grapes, then your mind's going to be on the vineyards and all of this, and, and what you need to go is go back, take care of that, make sure that it's producing, and then come join us on the front lines. If you're betrothed to a woman, again, we've spoken about that, that that was kind of the engagement period. In, in the Jewish ancient culture, they were legally married, but they didn't live together. They didn't consummate the marriage. 
And then there would be the third and final step, and that was that they would have the wedding ceremony. And that's when they would live together. If you're betrothed, you need to go back and wait till you're married, that final step, and then you can come join us in the front lines of battle. And then fourthly, if you're faint-hearted, you need to go home. Lest you begin to affect the other men that are fighting. You know, as we talk about in life as a battle, but also these are principles that I like to share with particularly those who desire to get on the front lines of ministry. And if you desire to get on the front lines of ministry, I, I go over these things with oftentimes these principles that are here. First of all, you better make sure that possessions and what you have just isn't overwhelming you to where it's a priority for you. In other words, if all you're thinking about is how I can get more and that isn't taken care of in your heart, then you're not going to be able to do battle. If that's all you're thinking about is your possessions and how I can have a bigger home and all these things, it's going to hinder you from really being focused on the Lord and what He wants to do in your life and how He wants to use you in your life. When it comes to eating of the grapes, when it comes to your occupation. If, if that is a priority with you where you're just, and listen to what I'm saying, you can love your job, you can do well in your job and your business and, and want to do well in that, but if that's your priority, then it's going to be hard to be on the front lines to do the battle for the Lord. Rather than just trusting, Lord, that you'll put me where you want me to be. If things aren't right at home with your spouse, It'd be hard to minister. And I tell people all the time that your spouse comes with you and ministers. And things need to be well at home. And they need to be supportive and praying for each other. And I know that I cannot do the ministry here at Calvary Chapel unless I have the support of my wife who's behind me and praying for me, which I do and which I have had always. So those things have got to be taken care of. And, and those things can't be where so occupied and, and overwhelming you that that's all you're thinking about. It's going to be hard to be on the front lines. And then if you're faint-hearted, and I'll tell you what, if you want to be involved in ministry, in front lines of ministry, you can't be faint-hearted. Because it is difficult. And particularly in the day and age in which we are living in. And so some principles here that, again, for whatever it might mean to us, that make sure that, that you have a proper perspective when it comes to your possessions, when it comes to your occupation, when it comes to your family, that things are well there. And that when you get involved in ministry, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Whatever it is that you might do, and what God has called you to do, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's a great joy. It's a great pleasure. It's wonderful, but there are times where it can be difficult. So these guidelines given for them, and he goes on and he says here in verse 10, when you go near a city to fight against it and then proclaim an offer of peace to it, then you shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now if the city will not make peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. 
But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoils, you shall plunder for yourself. And shall eat the enemy's plunder from which the Lord God gives you. And so these guidelines that are given, uh, you know, when they besiege a city, when they fight the enemy. Um, verse 15, thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations. But if the cities of these people which the Lord your God gives to you as an inheritance, you shall not let any of the brethren remain alive. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorites, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivites, Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. In verse 19, when you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its tree by willing an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down in the use of the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it is subdued. When you come to a city and there are trees and there's fruit trees, don't cut down the fruit trees because that could be food for you. It will benefit you. So don't start taking your axe and start chopping away on those trees. If it is trees that there's no fruit, you can go ahead and cut those trees and use it in your sieging the city or besieging the city. But don't cut down those trees that have fruit. One of the things that you and I need to be careful of, that those who are producing fruit for the Lord, don't start taking your axe and start swinging away and start chopping on people. You know why? Because they can benefit you. And I know that when I first got into ministry, that man, I love to take my axe and try to find fault with any other ministry or any other church that I could. And I remember reading this and the Lord really ministering to me. You need to be careful, Jeff. That those who are producing fruit, that you don't take your axe out and start swinging away because they can benefit you. And not everyone's going to be like me and not everyone's going to minister like I do and not every church is going to be like Calvary Chapel. But the thing is, we have a tendency where we like to do that. And remember what Paul the Apostle wrote in chapter 1 in the book of Philippians that we saw a few weeks ago. He says, approve the things that are excellent. In other words, I don't want to be known as one that's just chopping away at, at people and cutting them down and putting them down when they're producing fruit, fruit for the Lord. I want to be one that I encourage. I want to be one that is uplifting to others. I want to be one that I benefit from others that are producing fruit for the Lord. And I pray that we would do the same thing. That we would understand that we are to be ones. That we benefit from each other in the body of Christ as we produce fruit for the Lord. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, first of all. Caring for one another, building each other up, approving those things which are excellent.